Okay, so this is, has no kind of intellectual content to it compared to these three really interesting talks, but it occurs to me that pretty much every year of my academic life, certainly since I've been Oxford, I've been involved in some kind of appointments committee, whether it's appointing fellows, whether it's appointing one or two year lectures at other colleges, because often they'll, they'll call in people to assist, or, or indeed appointing JRFs and Fitzjameses and, and other kind of lecturers here. So I've seen people uh, at various sort of early stages in their careers and mid stages in their careers applying for jobs. In terms of the JRF competition specifically, uh, when I arrived in 2005, I actually had a, a Leverhulme grant so I wasn't terribly involved, um, but I've then been involved as an English subject specialist when it's been English's turn in that competition, so that would be 2008 and then 2011. Um, and there's also a post in the college uh, goes by the great name of the Harmsworth Secretary, which is the, the administrator for the process, or indeed actually not, the, it's the fellow who's the administrator, uh, there's then a, a real administrator who does the really difficult work. Um, and, and I've been the Harmsworth Secretary um, for two of those processes in effect. Um, so I've been sit I've sat on that JRF appointments committee uh, three times, uh, four times, and been sat in the interviews four times since since I've come to Merton. So that's sort of where I'm coming from. And it's perhaps quite important. I'm also coming from this, having seen other kinds of job interviews and, and um, how people who've done JRFs fit into those and so forth. On the question of why would one apply for a JRF, I, I, in a sense I'm sure that's pretty self-evident and as I think David said, that freedom to define one's own aims for, for three years is, is just surely a hugely desirable thing, so it, it, I almost don't need to talk you through that. I suppose also that one might feel during a, a doctorate that one's got a kind of momentum, that there are other questions on the horizon that you want to pursue. As Yanina, as I think, quite rightly said, that the, the kind of isolation or potential isolation, particularly in, I think, humanities based JRFs and, and social sciences ones of, of certainly of some kinds is, is you know might be a factor against in some ways as well that 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 is a, a difficult element to deal with um, I think in my understanding is it in the sciences there's often more of a research team uh, and a research group that one belongs to so I, I don't know if that is such a significant factor in relation to it but I suppose uh, in, in entertaining this topic I'm trying to also think of are there reasons why you might not apply why it might you might think that isn't quite the right move for you at that moment and that going in search of a teaching job with you know, presumably hopefully a research element attached to it um, would be more suitable to you so although it's, it's very easy to fall into thinking it's the, the the most desirable kind of job for everybody it may not be um, I, sh I should also have said actually by the way that on finishing my own um, PhD, my own DPhil in Oxford, having submitted it, um, I then got a six-month post at, at Bangor and was applying around that time for JRFs and, and got, got work called in but never got an interview. So I'm, I'm kind of unique of, among the speakers of, of never having held a JRF appointment. So I'm also coming to it perhaps from that angle. But that, you know, it worked out fine for me. So, okay, the, um, some statistics on this uh, in relation to this year's Merton competition. As you know, that we are part of a a group with Christchurch and St John's um, and essentially the nature of that, that arrangement is um, just a non-competition agreement. Um, we don't talk to them very much at all. We have a meet one meeting per year just to make sure that everyone's happy with the way things uh, are going. But we have a competition which rotates subjects. So this year it was of, among other things, physics, classics, geology, theology, etc., uh, etc., et and, and whole lot of other subjects this year and 264 people applied for that out of which we appointed three JRFs so the you, you can do the sums that's what's about one um, 88 applicants to every one place or something like that so getting into the undergraduate degree here is just incredibly easy by comparison to that um, so it's 
uh, it's extremely competitive. And, and although some of those were, were uh, invalid as applications because they didn't meet our, our criteria in terms of the number of years that they'd spent doing postgraduate studies, and although perhaps every now and then you get a few applications that are just not serious, mostly these are serious people with the right credentials in, in a sort of very broad frame. So it, it's very, very competitive. Very broadly, what is a selection committee surveying those 264 applications looking for? What they're not looking for is someone who wants a few more years to finish off their PhD, who's spent a bit too long over it and um, wants it to run on into to year five or six or, or, or seven. Definitely not that. What they want is some sort of new project, although how new that new project should be is, I think to some extent, a matter of disagreement among the uh, appointing people. Certainly, you know, I've heard it said that there should be a sense of definitely, definitively having moved on from the, um, the PhD project. It might be that the PhD will be submitted in the, the first year of the JRF, and that's okay. It, I think more usual at the moment is a sense that it will be submitted in, in the, between the, the interview of the JRF and the, 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 the October t- date when uh, the person takes it up. So you know, it's not uh, absolutely banned that there should be any work on the PhD. PhD during the JRF, but there should also be a sense that the, the candidate will be moving on to something. Now, whether it's a deepening and an expansioning of the PhD project, or whether in a sense it's a, a new piece of work in which the candidate will take forward skills they've developed while doing their PhD, as I say, I think differs. It differs from subject to subject because just of the nature of, um, of different disciplines. You know, that some disciplines there'll be a huge amount of data gathering, let's say, during the PhD, and that data that the candidate will have realised there are new ways to work on it, or that there's new data to be gathered. So it's it's very variable. But I guess the the important thing is to say you should have some way of defining what it is you're doing that's new in and in, in applying for it. They're also looking for, at a cruder level, publications or some kind of output at the end of it. The college wants to show that it's got something for having for, uh, appointed somebody to this, this, this JRF. You know, it may be that those will actually come out after the, the official terminal date of it, or, of course, sometimes during the JRF's fellows find a, a permanent job and, and move on before the three years is up. But Nevertheless, you know, the college would, I guess, hope that there'd be an article or a book um, saying most of the work for this was done while I was a junior research fellow at Merton College and that somewhere in print uh, the college's investment is acknowledged. And I think longer term beyond that, beyond those publications, beyond those three years, there's a sense that the college is looking for someone who will not just do good work but who will genuinely change the field that they work in. So that, uh, I mean, we're looking at a very high level of applicant here. So it's not just someone who's going to turn out a good book, but it's going to be someone who turns out a book that makes a real difference in their area. Exactly how you phrase that will differ from discipline to discipline, but there's a sense of someone who's going to be a leader, who's going to change the field, who's going to pose new questions, who's going to develop new techniques, who's maybe going to solve major problems that have been hanging over that field for a long time. So that's the kind of language we're looking for when we're talking about candidates in, in our selection meetings. I mean, of course, you know, there's always an element of randomness and, and I'm sort of feel, knowing that there's a number of JRFs in the audience, they sort of suddenly think, oh my goodness, <laughs> must I? Am I going to be able to do, you know, meet th- those kind of criteria? And, you know, we, we know that, but I guess there's that sense that we're looking for people who have that kind of ambition and the ability to match that ambition. I've brought along a slide with the the formal criteria 
that we put. This is probably available online somewhere in any case. Bits of it are fairly obvious. Um, that the person must have an ed- excellent educational record. But that needn't actually mean a first class, first degree. Um, we've, we've appointed people at JRFs who've had two ones at first degrees, but who've then come on at master's level and uh, at doctoral level. As I say, they must be approaching the end of their doctoral research. So it's, um, perhaps very obviously a JRF is not the place you begin your doctorate on. They must have research expertise in their field as demonstrated by a completed thesis, but not necessarily completed. And I think this is important, published or forthcoming books or articles in refereed journals. So evidence that goes beyond merely references saying um, he or she is a wise and brilliant person, but actual evidence from showing they've made their mark. That will differ again. Um, so it was computer science's turn this time. Uh, this year it was explained that in computer science, presenting at certain kinds of conferences is actually the, the marker of esteem rather than publishing in, in journals. A book would be r- actually relatively unusual for a person applying for a JRF. More likely be looking for a, a thesis that had potential to be turned into a book fairly soon. And again, a book is much more a uh, criterion within the humanities. I mean, most scientists wouldn't be looking to publish a book for you know, some considerable number of years and, and maybe never. Have the ability to present these research findings effectively to fellow professionals at national and international conferences or in professional research seminars. So in terms, I think that really keys into that notion of leadership. If you can't get out there and talk about it effectively and communicate it effectively, then even if your ideas are brilliant, you, you may um, not succeed. There's also a sense that the the process of presentation in interviews is demands those kind of communication skills. That they have to have a coherent plan of research for the duration of the fellowship. As I say, that's in a way touching on what I was saying about novel, uh, newness and about a valuable contribution. And a rather practical one in the final bullet point that uh, for scientists uh, it's clearly if you're going to be working in a group you need to have the permission of that group uh, often to use bits of equipment and, and to be part of it. So um, an additional sort of formal confirmation is required. The particular competition that run by, is run by Merton St John's Christchurch has some other criteria about how long you can have been doing doctoral work for at the point of application. This year we had a, this criterion of that the candidates should have completed their first degree before 1st October 2007. In fact, in, in practice, that didn't prove a very good one for, for judging how long people have been doing res- research because, of course, lots of people have time out between their, their first degree and beginning a master's. Um, so as the Harmsworth Secretary, one of my principal and tedious tasks is to vet all 264 applications to see that they do meet these, these criteria and that one I was having to, to cast aside quite frequently for normal kind of life reasons that people spent a year or two out after their first degree. The second one that by the time of taking up the, the JRF, i.e. this year, October 2013, they will have completed no more than six years of full-time graduate study is very important and there's a problem there which in a sense, probably doesn't apply to anyone here, but it's about North American doctoral degree paths, which take a lot longer. And there's a perennial problem of trying to create some comparability. But the general view is that uh, we have to stick quite solidly to that rule. It's actually also enshrined currently in the bylaws of the college, so that um, when we appoint JRFs uh, under that scheme, they won't have um, completed more than six years. There can be some complications there. What if somebody has done a master's in an an adjacent field but has then moved over, perhaps done a second master's because they suddenly realise that what they want to do is, let's say, not history of ideas but philosophy. Do we count a history of ideas master's as relevant or do we 
see it as a, a false path. Clearly, with the normally, we'd be thinking about life events such as maternity leave or those sorts of things. We would allow extra time for, for somebody if they'd interrupted their graduate studies in, in those sorts of ways or, or had to, to, to drop out for, for a period to, to earn money. So we, we interpret normally relatively liberally in terms of life events, but I think in terms of people's larger choices about which doctoral programme to take and where, where they take it, um, we're, we're less liberal about it. Um, and perhaps a rather more obvious one, if you've already had one JRF, you can't apply for another one. So um, that's just greedy. So those are the rather more formal criteria. You'll notice there's nothing there in terms of about teaching. And one of the big shifts over the last 10 years actually has been that when we ask JRF candidates how do they, th- they think they fit into the life of the, the college, you know, they now tend to say, will there be opportunities for teaching? Whereas apparently 10 years ago, you know, sometimes they, they were saying, How can I avoid having to do any teaching over this period of of time? So, however, as a formal requirement, it's it's not there at all, certainly not for this competition. Um, So it's entirely down to the candidate to to take on as much or as little as they want. In terms, of, of course, of this competition, it's a peculiar competition that we advertise for and admit people who uh, do subjects that we don't teach to undergraduates in this college. So um, in, in some cases, we take on people who would then have to, if they wanted to do undergraduate teaching, go to another college to do some for them. But that's all fine. As I said, I suppose I just wanted to highlight that teaching is, is not in that list and, and for this competition, not something we're interested in. So who assesses this? Well, for the, the Merton Christchurch St John's one, each college has its committee with um, experts drawn from that college in the, the relevant fields and where there isn't a, a college fellow in the fields they will send out the dossiers to some external advisor. So for this one you have in a sense a peculiar dynamic in the committee that you have people who are experts in, in humanities, in science, in social sciences and so forth all advising and all speaking for their subjects but also trying as best they can to assess the, the strengths and the potential of candidates in, in other disciplines. If you look at other JRF competitions elsewhere, you sometimes have ones that are more subject-specific. You have ones that are absolutely for a particular subject, you know, JRF in history or, or um, developmental econom- economics or, or something like that. And then you have a rather more intermediate category. I noticed, say, Homerton College, Cambridge, had one for humanities, or it had one field for humanities, another field for the sciences. Uh, and it's worthwhile thinking about that if you're applying for a JRF, who's at the, the receiving end of this? How far do you have to pitch your language towards non-specialists? The, the Merton one has a particular field in which you describe your um, field of research, a particular box, as it were. You reti- describe your field of research in terms suitable for non-specialists, and that's clearly the one that everyone on the committee should be reading. Uh, and then there's a, a page or so for a more technical description. And it's worth bearing in mind that they might use external readers. So it makes a difference clearly in a very simple level to how far you use the technical language of your discipline. It also makes a difference to how far you have to explain or justify the importance of what you're doing. If you're applying for one, that, a JRF that's specific to your subject, um, as I say, as we find in other colleges, then you're not going to have to justify why it's important to, to do um, plant physiology or um, English literature or something. You might have to explain why it's important that you're doing the little bit of it that you're doing, but that's then for your own subject community rather than a broader one. And getting a sense of your audience and and how to justify what you're doing is pretty important in that. So that's some about who assesses. I'll come back to that in a moment. How, if you've decided a JRF is for you, how do you prepare for it? 
um, how do you prepare to make an application? In a sense, I think you need to be preparing, um, if you're currently doing a doctorate, years ahead in some ways. You need to be thinking about future projects. You need to be thinking about um, what will I do after my doctorate. And uh, certainly, if you're anything like I was, the doctoral mind space is all about can I get to the end of this, can I complete this? But actually, you need to be assuming that you will, that you'll be successful, and that it will be, you know, it will be passed with only the most minor of corrections, and that you'll move on. So having a slightly longer-term scale of thought is very important. And while you're doing your doctorate, thinking about future projects that will build on the skills you've developed, perhaps enable you to develop some new skills, uh, and that will make some kind of difference. So you know, that's something you can be doing from year one of a doctorate, certainly in my field. Thinking about referees, actually, certainly I found that, again, this is perhaps a more of a peculiarly humanities problem, but you can end up really only knowing your supervisor, potentially. And very often, JRF competitions will ask for three referees to write in support of the application. So cultivating, is essentially, referees uh, during the time of your doctorate is quite important. And, in a way, impressing them, because quite a lot, uh, maybe it shouldn't be this way, but it is, quite a lot rests on how strong a case they can make for you. From that point of view, we are always adjusting for the kind of rhetoric the person uses. It's well known that North American references are often more kind of uh, hyperbolic than those by <laughs> we, we understated British people. But you know, we're also impressed by somebody who can say, I've spent 30 years supervising PhD students and this is one of the best ones I've seen, it's the best one I've seen in the last 10 years. So there is a certain advantage to um, cultivating more senior contacts as well from that point of view, because they can say that with confidence, whereas uh, a more recently uh, member of the, the, the profession won't necessarily be able to, to say that kind of thing. But also thinking about publishing as well. As I say, um, it's mentioned on those lists and... A lot of our applicants, uh, and the, certainly the successful applicants this year, had published in major journals in their field or had done something equivalent, as I say, in something like computer science. Um, they may have given papers at really important conferences. So it's also important in that to, to aim high. Just having five journal publications or, or chapters in books or whatever won't be, wouldn't be enough. It's important to at least have tried to get them into the top journals in your field because that really carries a lot of weight. If a subject expert can come in and say... Um, yeah, you know, that one is one of the, the three most important for, for my particular area. The rest of the panel won't necessarily you know, have a clue about whether that's, um, the journal of comparative agnosiology is, is important or not, but the, the expert who comes in to speak to the panel will do. And finally, um, and this is perhaps particularly something for humanities people, but probably for everyone, understand the state of your field and how your work fits into it. And we find year after year on the committee that scientists are very good at this. I think probably because they work much more in teams, and I think also because there's more of a culture of grant writing within those scientific research teams. So, And within that process of grant writing, there's then a sense of having to explain why what they're doing is important, why it matters. Uh, and in the humanities, you, have, you find often brilliant people uh, with great research projects who are actually rather baffled as to why their work matters or unable to articulate why what they're doing could be important. So thinking about why your work matters, and that's also a case of thinking about why does your field matter to people outside it. Um, and that might mean why does working on Victorian literature matter to people who work on early modern literature but it would also mean why does working on literature at all matter to somebody who does cell biology or nuclear physics or classics. So shifting your perspective in a way and asking those bigger questions about value. Quite often, though not always, scientists can come into these um, appointments things and say, what I'm doing will 
cure this disease or it will create a faster, more reliable version of this or it will save us from this sort of problem. So they're quite good at those sort of instrumental applications of science. It might be that they should prepare for those questions of if you don't cure cancer or Parkinson's, why does what you're doing matter? What does it tell us at a more abstract intellectual level? But in my experience, those questions aren't so often posed to, to scientists that committees are sufficiently impressed by these, the more instrumental side of, of the sciences. So, yeah, thinking about why it matters. And, and I suppose another version of, of that question from the college's side is why should we fund this? What are we going to see at the end of it again? Not just in that terms of three papers in the top journal at the end of it, but in terms of a bigger contribution to the world of ideas, to humanity, if we can be so grandiose. So, sort of very briefly on the, the process. This is fairly specific to Merton. The application process itself takes a few months. So you'd, um, you'd apply for a deadline of usually early December. Um, there'd be a shortlisting meeting in late January uh, and interviews in late February. Why does it take so long? Well, I mean, after all, first of all, it's got to go through the Harmsworth Secretary who has to look through 264 dossiers and decide whether they're all legitimate, which is not massively time-consuming, but it's um, distinctly boring. Um, they then have to be sent out to subject specialists who you know, may have all sorts of other demands on their time uh, as well. And they, for the larger schools, these are pretty significant lumps. So English, when it's come around, is often between 80 to 100 applicants. At least in Merton, we often split those on a period basis. But it's still a huge n- amount of stuff to be got through. And that's you know, research proposals to be read, three references to be read for each of them. Um, no written work at that stage in, in, in our particular process. But still, just a huge bulk of stuff, really. And from those, uh, each of the subject specialists would sift the, what they think are the best, usually at that stage on a proportion of about 1 in 10. So they'd take to a committee in late January. We, we, the, the entire committee would then look at about 30 applications, I suppose, I think it was this year. So slightly more than, than uh, 1 in 10. Uh, and from that, the committee would have to whittle it down to 15 for interview. And we'd then... Um, timetable those interviews, we'd bring in external experts in some cases to to do an expert interview as part of the interview process and from that 15 we'd then, as I say, choose three for election. So there there are just kind of bits of paper to be shoved around, things to be read. I should say, yes, also in that shortlisting process where the subject experts are looking at them, they would call up written work at that stage. Not everybody who has written work called up would necessarily make it through even to the long list. They would, in calling up that work, they would then perhaps send it out to a further expert to, with a real expertise in that area, but usually not the supervisor, to, to give some sort of letter of opinion. So the, the shortlisting committee is then looking at the applications plus these external um, reports on the written work. They wouldn't look at the written work in itself because of course they wouldn't understand it you know the old, only, only one person on the committee would at best would probably understand it so we get through to 15 now it, as I say that the, the statistics are pretty much loaded against you but I may as well explain a bit about the interview process if you're lucky enough to get through to there at Merton and this will vary from college to college but often there'll be an element of a, a presentation for a general audience as it were which means the committee which is relatively it, relatively non-technical um, then there might be uh, a more technical interview, usually lasting longer, 15, 20 minutes, by uh, an expert in the field, very often who's been brought in from outside the committee. 
Then there might be more general questions, and so in, this is the point where the non-subject experts can say, um, can I ask a very silly question about you know, why you call it that, or, or why you're doing it this way? But sometimes these can be pretty acute questions, actually. You may have somebody who's, who knows about experimental method, and they can see uh, what's going on in someone's experiment, or just someone who's got a kind of sharp eye for a well-constructed and well-framed question. Um, after that, the candidate would, would leave, and then very often the, the expert would give some feedback to the committee, saying, well, you know, how did that go? because it may have been completely over the heads of the, uh, uh, of the committee, but th there'd be some sort of sense, you know, those, those, those were very sharp answers, those were slightly muddy answers, and also a more general assessment of the person, you know, are they really going to, to lead the field? So within that interview situation, it's peculiar, it must be incredibly demanding on the candidates, I think, because there's a, they're constantly having to shift levels and think about different kinds of, of audience. Uh, they're having this conversation with their experts, and in some senses they just have to focus on that person and talk within the, the boundaries of their discipline, but seconds later they're, going, they're fielding a question from somebody in a totally different field. And this might be you know, potentially not exactly hostile question, but one from someone who's sceptical about the value of what's going on. You know, you know, so you might find a, a, a physicist asking a question about why are you studying the metre of, of Tennyson or something like this, and, and you know, having to then connect across the, these great disciplinary gulfs. So that's difficult. Some things to think about within all that. Scientists, we find, it's curious, are very often talking in terms of we. We did this, we did this, we set up this stuff, we, we've been finding these great results and so forth. And clearly the committee wants to know, well, what are you bringing to it? So where's the I within that we? It's not that we want people to go rogue and kind of break away from their research groups. Of course we don't. But we, it's quite hard, actually, as a committee to get a feel for how the person fits in with that group. Sometimes the expert or the references will, will make that a bit clearer for us. But I think go back to that, that question of, of analysis. Think about how you fit into that we. In the humanities, the problem you know, tends to be more about talking about I and not thinking about we. So you need to think about why does it matter? Why should it matter to, to anybody else? So assuming you get through all that process and you get a JRF. There are, I think, still certain risks involved. When I was at Bangor, I remember very distinctly interviewing somebody who'd held a JRF in Oxford and seemed to have spent, uh, in the humanities, obviously, in English, and had spent a lot of time organising seminars, probably being you know, a really good citizen within his subject community, but didn't actually seem to have published very much at, at that stage. And if you think about somebody in a university outside Oxford in particular who might, in some respects, envy the, the resources we have and the time we have, that doesn't look particularly good. You know, they're trying to get their research done on far more meagre resources and they find someone who seems to have been living a relatively um, good life <laughs> and they, they find they haven't made the best of it. So you know, there's a risk that uh, it might not present well to, to that kind of community. I think that, that may have been a very exception, a rare case that we came across, but it's, it's worth thinking about... Um, there, there is something beyond it and that there are other skills needed um, as well as the, the subject leading work and so forth. I mean, there's a curious sense that, uh, of having to then be more pra pragmatic and think about the practical skills that are involved in lectureships, in fellowships uh, and, and so forth. So the statistics are extremely difficult, but it's an extremely valuable prize as well. On the other hand, if you're one of the 261, as it were, applicants who, who didn't get it, there are also lots of other, there are other posts out there, other ways in which you can pursue your research.